are not done with Pierre Delavagna. How could we be done with someone who speaks in Inferno with such unbelievable irony, rhetorical power, who brings up so many questions in the text as a whole? You can tell I'm excited. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we are up to Canto 13. We're in the seventh circle of hell. We're in the second ring of the seventh circle of hell. If you're dropping in right here, wow, there is so much behind us. There is Francesca and Ferranata. There's the lustful and the gluttons. There's the angry. There's Karen and his boat. So much you might want to go back and catch up to us because a podcast is an eternal reality. But we are here. We're amongst the suicides and the squanderers who have squandered their own property. We're in the seventh circle, the violent, and the second ring of that circle. We're at line 79 through 108 of Canto 13 of Inferno. He hesitated, and then, While he has fallen silent, the poet said to me, Don't lose any time, but speak up and ask him things if you'd like. At which I to him, Please ask him again about whatever you believe would bring me satisfaction, for I couldn't. So much pity disheartens me. So he began, If you want to make this man do freely what you've begged him to say, imprisoned spirit, May it please you to explain how the spirit is lain in these naughty brambles, and tell us, if you can, if anyone ever undoes his parts from these twisted limbs. At which the stem huffed and puffed, and then that wind was transformed into a voice. You'll get an answer, if briefly. When the violent soul takes leave of its body, from which it has torn itself out by the roots. Minos dictates its place in the seventh circle. It falls into the wood in no special spot, but wherever fortune tosses it down, and there it germinates like a spilt grain. It sends out a shoot, then becomes a tangled mess. The harpies arriving to sample the leaves give it sorrow, and a window for its sorrow. Like the others, we will eventually come by our spoils, but not like the others to clothe ourselves in them. For it is not just for a man to have what he has taken from himself. We will drag them here, and in this miserable wood our bodies will be hung, each one on the bush of his own devious shade. That's the second speech by Pierre de la Vagna amongst the suicides. This is a pretty packed passage. There are eight bits I'd like to get through. Let's start. The passage begins, he hesitated, and then, while he has fallen silent, the poet said to me, and I should just let you know, this is a minor thing, that there's a translation problem here. He hesitated. Who hesitated? If you look at almost all English translations from Hollander forward, they all say the poet hesitated and then said this. Not sure. Not sure who's hesitating right here. Is it Pierre de la Vigne or is it the poet? 
the line in the Florentine is he hesitated and then while he has fallen short, as I translated, the poet said to me, don't lose any time. And there it's clear the poet is the one saying while this one's fallen silent or fallen short or stop speaking, don't waste time, pilgrim, speak up, ask him what you want. But that he is a little unclear who's doing the hesitation. Is it important to the interpretation of the poem? Maybe. If the branch, or Pierre de la Vigne, is the one hesitating, then he has more to say. And then he clearly thinks he has more to say. He hasn't come to a conclusion, although it seemed like he came to a conclusion in the last episode of this podcast and in his first speech. So it's a little bit funky right there. If the poet, Virgil, the Roman poet, is hesitating, then why is he hesitating? Has he been moved by this suicide and by his rhetorical flourishes? Has Virgil been somehow changed or altered by this shade? There's a little bit of an interpretive mm, funkiness sitting right there. And you could play with that for forever. I just wanted to point it out to you. I'm not going to solve it. I'm going to pass right on. Let me start back up at the top. He hesitated and then... While he has fallen silent, the poet said to me, don't lose any time, but speak up and ask him things if you'd like. At which I to him, please ask him again about whatever you believe would bring me satisfaction, for I couldn't. So much pity disheartens me. I'm going to stop on this bit right here. The pilgrim has spoken. You realize this is the first time the pilgrim has spoken since Canto 11. We have been all the way through Canto 12 and all the way up to this point in Canto 13, and our pilgrim Dante has been silent through the violent toward others and through most of the violent toward themselves. Curious that the pilgrim is so quiet. We seem to be in Virgil's territory, or Virgil seems to be dealing with the damned way more than our pilgrim. Why? We could posit all kinds of reasons for that. We could say, well, it has to do with Dante himself, that he himself was subject to political violence and violence of other sorts. So given all of that, Dante himself, the poet, finds it better to place Virgil in front of him psychologically. It's safer this way. We could also posit it that the pilgrim is in some way overwhelmed by what he sees in these circles. And that's clearly what he says right here. In fact, you'll note, he says, please ask him again about whatever you believe. And he uses the word believe again. Believe over and over in this canto. The word believe comes up. Trust, faith, the belief relationship that is the very heart of literary interpretation. The belief that you can discern what a poet says to you. The belief in you that you can take me in this podcast as a guide and trust me. Even though you may not agree with me, you can still trust me to at least lead you somewhere. My belief that I can see what the poet is trying to make me see. I believe that he believed that I believed all the bit that we went back and forward on earlier in the canto. And this this has a little ring to that. Please ask him again about whatever you believe would bring me satisfaction. It has that little ring of where exactly is the driving engine here because it's all being based on a trust relationship, which is the same relationship that lackeys have to have with their tyrants. Oh, it's so thickly packed here and it's so strange. But we come out of that and the pilgrim says, I couldn't for so much pity disheartens me. And of course, 
We can't help right here but see the poet. We can't help but see Dante in exile. Here, he's talking to a court functionary, someone done in by political court maneuvers, somebody who found himself so in despair at politics that he offed himself perhaps even in front of his tyrant, Frederick II. No wonder the pilgrim and potentially the poet behind the pilgrim is disheartened. We've had a progression. In Canto 10, we were with Ferenata. And we, well, how do I say this? It, we had a, a, a reasoning with a warlord. I mean, Dante the Pilgrim had a conversation with Ferenata, and there was a way you could reason with a warlord, and you could kind of come to terms with Ferenata in the middle of Canto 10 and toward its end. Then we had Canto 11, which is the mapping of hell. And then in Canto 12, we saw the punished warlords, the tyrants. So, we started with being able to reason with warlords. Then we saw warlords who overreached tyrants and became violent against others and are punished in hell. And now we come down to someone who is destroyed by a warlord, kind of the detritus of tyranny from Ferenata to the tyrants to Pierre. It's been this progression of the cost of politics, the cost of power, and it's come down slowly from the hope of being able to talk to a warlord to hear the truth that you can be done in by politics. Passing on, let's see what Virgil says. Virgil says, okay, you know, fine, I'll speak for you. And he turns to Pierre, the bush, and he says, if you want to make this man do freely what you have begged him to, to say, remember, because Pierre had said, remember me up top. So if you want this guy to do that kind of thing in prison spirit, may it please you to explain how the spirit is laying in these naughty brambles. And I just want to stop on imprisoned spirit. Virgil seems to indicate that hell itself is a prison. You know who else has already told us that hell is a prison? Cavalcante. In Canto 10, line 58, Galicante referred to hell as a prison. It's yet another tieback. There are so many tiebacks to Canto 10, to Limbo, to the first Canto. They're tying back everywhere in this Canto, in the rhetorical song and dance, the fancy dance of this Canto. And here, speaking of Cavalcante, who is in grief over the death of his son, here we have this call out of prison again, of hell as a prison. It may seem like a lot to hang on imprisoned spirit, and yet this is Dante we're talking about. This is someone who very much worried about how language works, who very much worried about how to echo himself inside his own poem and how to echo other poets, Ovid, Virgil, and many, many more, as we will see, that this word imprisoned jumps up here and that it was in Cavalcante's mouth back, all the way back with Ferenata when, he, when Cavalcante rose up on his knees in the tomb. Well, we just shouldn't be surprised by any of that, that there's a linking. Because as I say, I think there's a question here about good government and about the role of humans in good government. And I think that Ferenata to the tyrants to this point, in which we see the cost of tyranny, someone who is so full of despair that he offs himself because of court intrigue, 
I think we should see that progression working and we shouldn't be surprised that there are callbacks to make us notice that once we've entered this, we've entered a larger discourse about the body politic and the role of human society in organizing humans, in organizing them legally, and in also keeping the peace. Okay, so what does Virgil ask? Of this soul. He says, you know, may it please you to explain how the spirit is laying in these naughty brambles and tell us if you can, if anyone ever undoes his parts from these twisted limbs. I find this question that Virgil asks, does anyone ever get out of being a bush once they hit this place? I find this question fascinating because Virgil seems at this moment to think that Pierre is in the bush, that that's not really Pierre de la Vigne. And as we will see in the explanation that happens, that isn't a spirit inside a bush. Maybe you've seen the William Blake drawing of this portion of hell, and the spirits seem to be inside the trees. That's actually in my opinion, a misinterpretation. It's not that Pierre de la Vigne is inside this bush, it's that he is this bush. This is who he is. There's no coming out of it. <laughs> There's no ability for the spirit to come out of this bush because it's one thing. Here's why I find this also fascinating, because Virgil is still arguing for dualism. He's still arguing for mind-body split. As if there's the mind or the soul or the spirit, pick the words you want, and then it has a physical form and they're split. And in the Christian theological tradition that Dante is going to adhere to and become more and more indebted to, the body and the soul are one thing. And they may be temporarily divided at this moment before the end of time. But when the end of time happens, when the apocalypse happens, the dead are going to be re-embodied and the saved are going to be re-embodied. And in the end, it's not two things. This is a transition moment in which the soul and the body are apart, but they're not a dualism in the end. In the end, a human is fundamentally one thing, not a mind and a body, but one thing combined. Interesting that Virgil, a figure from the classical world, is still arguing for a kind of dualism, still trying to kind of figure it out. Okay, so, so does anybody get out of these bushes? No, 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 Virgil, as we'll see, they don't get out of these bushes. They are these bushes. That I find curious for Virgil, that he's caught in dualism that may be against a Christian notion of the bodily resurrection of the dead, which are coming and which Pierre will explain to us. The stem huffs and puffs and then the wind, you know, we've been told that it's like the air and the blood coming out and the of a burning branch. The wind is transformed back into a voice and Pierre starts in again. You'll get an answer if briefly. When the violent soul takes leave of its body and notice how he's phrased that he's a suicide. He is being a little bit cagey there and his caginess there when the violent soul takes leave of its body, as I've translated the Florentine, his caginess there should ask us what kind of caginess is going on in this speech before the speech in which he lined out his life. And I tried to point that out in the last episode of this podcast. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it again or listen to it the first time or whatever, because I tried to show you where he's being cagey. But here 
It's a little bit rhetorically florid for what a suicide is. It didn't, the soul didn't just take leave of its body. It was torn out. And he follows it up with that, right? From which it, was to- it tore itself out by the roots. Ah, uh, now he got honest. He started with a little bit of rhetorical fudging, and then he got honest. And one of the things that's interesting about this speech, the second speech from Pierre de la Vagna, is that he gets more and more honest in the second speech. It's like Ferranata. Remember back in Ferranata when we had to kind of encounter Ferranata and we had to get all the, well, BS out of Ferranata and all the classism and elitism and all that. And then we had to reach a point where we got around it and Ferranata started to speak more fundamentally truly. Remember the same thing happened with Francesca. We had to kind of get around her big self-justification. And then we had to hit the moment in which they read the book as she continues on her speech. It's as if the dams start out trying to justify themselves and then back up and slowly, almost maybe against their will or somehow through talking too much, they become more honest. Interestingly, both Ferranata and here now Pierre de la Vagna get more honest about themselves when they approach the resurrection or the apocalypse. As they approach discussion of the end of time, they suddenly start to get more honest, both of them. And that's an interesting problem that may be in both cantos. It may be something about the end of the world, the end of time, the apocalypse, the second kingdom of Christ, whatever you want to call it, that forces a kind of honesty. So Pierre de la Vagna says, here's the answer when the violent soul takes leave of itself, of its body, and then he kind of clarifies it from which it has torn itself up by the roots. Notice he's still continuing that plant metaphor. Minos dictates its place in the seventh circle. We remember Minos. We remember him sitting up there at the second circle of hell right before the lustful we remember that wrapping of the tail <laughs> it's curious though how does the soul get here does the tail go around the body seven and what one third times seven times <laughs> to indicate the first ring of the violent seven and one third to, re- uh, to represent the second ring and seven and two thirds to represent the next ring in the next canto it's very very curious how that all works out but you know what we're gonna blow it off as i think the poet does and just say the seventh circle minos dictates its place in the seventh circle it falls into the wood in no special spot and wherever fortune tosses it down there it germinates like a spelt grain this is actually one i want to stop on in no special spot do we believe that i'm not sure we should Pierre de la Vagna seems to say, well, you know, Minos casts it down, and like a seed, it just falls down, I don't know, anywhere, willy-nilly, and then it turns into this bush, as we'll see. Seems odd to me, in no special spot wherever fortune tosses it out or tosses it down. Every time I've ever taught this passage, those lines jump out to me, because I think to myself, wait a minute, in a divinely ordained universe, there's not going to be no special spot There are going to be places in which all of this has been ordained as punishment, especially when we come to the punishment of the damned and well, and of the and the and the and the blessings of the saved too. But you know what I mean when we come to the plant punishments of the damned. It can't just be willy nilly. It can't just be random. So right here, I always turn a very narrow eye on Pierre and on his speech. Falls into the wood in a special spot. 
and wherever fortune tosses it down, and there it germinates like a spelt grain. There's a this is the other thing I want to stop on. There seems to be a reference here to the parable Jesus tells of the sower. Jesus tells us a parable in the New Testament in the Gospels about a sower who walks along throwing grain, and some of the grain falls on hard ground and dries, and some of it falls into the rocks and it grows up with brambles, and some of it. Uh, falls on the fertile ground, the plowed ground, and it sprouts and becomes full grain, you know, as, as the seed is tossed out. Um, Jesus likens this to throwing out the gospel message or the good news that he's preaching. That is, you know, some of it falls on rocky soil and, and it grows up with brambles. Some of it throw, uh, falls on dead soil, and so it doesn't germinate. And some of it falls on uh, good soil, and it produces disciples like my 12 disciples. That seems to be running back underneath this passage. And this seems to be an infernal recreation of Jesus's parable of the sower inside of this moment, just hiding behind it. We should always be on the lookout for things like this, always on the lookout for moments in which the passage twists the New Testament, particularly the New Testament, in some way to give it an infernal mm, take, to give it an infernal spin. And I think that's probably sitting back behind this passage. Pierre de Livigne goes on and says it sends out a shoot, then it becomes a tangled mess. The harpies arrive to sample the leaves, giving it sorrow and a window for its sorrow. Well, first we should say hello, Ovid. Hello, metamorphoses. This is our first big metamorphical moment in Dante's comedy. So we should tip our hat to Ovid. We don't have to tip it too far. I read you the passages from Ahmed that I think are important to this. I think it's important to see this as a beginning pattern of metamorphical thematics inside of comedy itself. But let's just tip our hat to Ovid and move on and say, what else is going on here? Ah, give it sorrow and a window for its sorrow. That's the literal translation of the Florentine. What it means is that the harpies come and they hurt, you know, they chew on it, these these beast birds with human faces. They eat the leaves, and so it hurts because we know blood spurts out. And yet at the same time, we know that when blood spurts out, the thing can talk because the blood and the air seem to come out and form a voice in these metamorphized objects, these bushes. Interesting that. Give it sorrow and a window for its sorrow. It strikes me that that line lies right at the heart of Dante's poetics. Dante, a man on the run, a man in great sorrow, a man who has lost his home, his place that he belongs, the place where he was born, the place where he rose to some prominence, his sorrow. And on the run, he is finding a way inside that sorrow to give a window for his sorrow, to give speech, to give a look into it, to be able to speak it, to poetic it, as it were. And I always cross this line, give it sorrow and a window for its sorrow, and think, oh, there's the poet. There he sits right there, the man who is on the run, who is sad, who is alone quite often, and yet who also is using that moment in order to write this great poem, a window on that sorrow and a window that is beyond that sorrow. I've been teaching 
eight weeks on Emily Dickinson in an, in, through a library in New England. And I'm just about to finish those eight weeks on Emily Dickinson. And I keep coming back to this idea with Dickinson. I know this is a long way from Dante, but let me have it. That the way she created this poetry that is almost unbelievable is she dug farther and further and further and farther down into her own subjectivity and that digging down farther and farther into her own idiosyncratic voice, into her own set of complex metaphors, her own personal relationship with language and her own personal experience, digging farther and further and further and farther down into that, she created poetry that reaches out beyond the page and hits me. And I think that the same is true with Dante. I think Dante found a way to dig farther into his sorrow. I can't speak to this branch because so much pity disheartens me. And found a way to dig further and farther into his own pain to create a poem that then is able to transcend that pain and touch me 700 years later. Give it sorrow and a window for its sorrow the heart of Dantean poetics. Passing on in the passage, Pierre de la Vigne goes on, like the others, we will eventually come by our spoils. I just translated this directly. What he means is the body, uh, the spoils of war, as it were, our bodies. And he he uses a word spoils that is a little um, freakish and a little strange. We've seen this already once in comedy. And it, it has this notion of a kind of warfare in the physical life up on Earth. But they'll eventually come by their spoils, but not like the others to clothe ourselves in them. In other words, we're not going to put our flesh back on in the resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. For it is not just, Pierre says, for a man to have what he has taken from himself. You threw away your body and you can't have it back in the same way that everyone else has. Let's say two things. One, this is utter and unbelievable heresy. This is not Christian doctrine under any stretch of the imagination. And this may be getting, again, as we discussed in the last episode, close to literary suicide. In Christian theology, the body and the soul are reunited in the resurrection of the dead, both for the damned and for the saved. And this, that somehow they don't take on their bodies, and they have to drag them back down to hell? Mm, boy, this is just stretching credulity as far as you can possibly stretch it. It may be committing theological suicide, and it may even be getting close to creating literary suicide for someone who would so contradict church doctrine. That's my first thing, is the mere heresy of the statement. But my second thing is that last line, for it is not just for a man to have what he has taken from himself. It is not just. Pierre just admitted that he is not just remember in the last speech, injusto fece me contra me justo. Injustice made me be unjust to my just self. And I talked about how Pierre de la Vigne seems to be claiming he's just. Well, at the end of this speech, when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, he suddenly admits that he's not just, or that he's on the wrong side of justice, for it is not just for a man to have what he has taken from himself. Notice how the damned tend to get more honest 
the more they speak, and two, the more they speak closely about the resurrection or the apocalypse or the end of time. It's as if it forces a kind of honesty out of him. And at least at this moment, Pierre is on the wrong side of justice, which should make us go back and look at that induced statement from the earlier speech with slightly more jaundiced eyes. Pierre says, we will drag them here in this and in this miserable wood, our bodies will be hung, each one on the bush of its own devious shade. The other thing running underneath this bit is Judas Iscariot, the iconographic suicide. Judas betrays Jesus, as you may know, for 30 pieces of silver, and then... Once Jesus is crucified, Judas goes out and hangs himself, and it says in the New Testament that he hangs himself on a tree. And this bit of the fleshy corpse hanging off the bush has a Judas Iscariot, mm, uh, what, metaphor, simile, uh, allusion running underneath of it. And don't forget that Pierre de la Vigne was pardoned, condemned, was not partly condemned, was actually condemned for court corruption and even possibly for embezzlement. So Judas, who kept the treasury, see, there's a kind of parallel being drawn here. And there's a way, especially in Christian thought, that part of why Judas commit suicide is not just guilt over having sent Jesus to his death, but that Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas wanted a political Messiah. Judas wanted a political savior that would save the Hebrew people from Roman domination. And when it was clear that Jesus wasn't going to do that, Judas betrayed him in order to force his hand. And then when that didn't work out, Judas went and committed suicide. There may be running around here underneath this passage that same idea. That is, that Pierre de la Vigne served a secular master, Frederick II. He wanted Frederick II to be more than he was. After all, he says he holds the two keys to Frederick. I mean, as if Frederick is Jesus in some way. See, the Judas imagery is becoming tighter in it. And then when Frederick let him down, or when the court let him down, or Frederick didn't protect him from the court, he offed himself. He wanted some kind of political power and then did found that it didn't work the way he wanted it to. It's hard to pin it exactly, but you can see there may be a Judas Iscariot iconography running underneath Pierre de la Vigne, which would then also bring into question the whole motivation for his speech, which also may make it not as easy and straightforward as we might think. You know what? I thought about doing two podcasts on Pierre de la Vigne, just like I did two on Francesca, one the case for him and one the case against him, because he is as complicated as Francesca. And clearly, the pilgrim's pity lies with him. I think, perhaps, the poet's pity lies with him. And yet, he is divinely punished, which means he ought not to be the object of pity. We ought to side with God and say, well, hey, you offed yourself. This is where you belong. All making the passage incredibly complicated, which is why we want to take a slow walk through Dante's comedy which is why you need to come back next time, because this is not done. We're not finished with the 13th canto. That's Pierre de la Vigne's last lines, but there's more 
and it gets wilder. Wait till you see what comes next. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to have you back next time. Connect with me on Twitter, on Facebook. There's a group walking with Dante. How you want to contact me? Contact me through the web, my website, markscarbo.com. I'd love to connect with you about Dante. I had a great email from someone in Cornwall who's been listening to this podcast. Hey, he put me on the coolest podcast about James Joyce. Rejoice. You might want to check that out. It's a podcast in in which Frank Delaney walks line by line through Joyce's Ulysses. So see, line by line, it's a thing. Come back next time for more from the second ring of the seventh circle of hell on Walking with Dante. (music) 